From Relay FM, this is Upgrade episode 266. Today's show is brought to you by the fine people over at Bombas, Squarespace, and Direct Mail. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Hi, Mike Hurley. You're very energetic this morning. Well, it's a big day, big show. I'm very excited about today's topic. A lot, a lot going on this week. Yeah. A lot going on. Yeah. Including happy birthday, Jason Snell. Oh, oh, thank you. That was, uh, yeah, it's all in the past now. <laughs> Apple provided you with a gift. We're actually going to eschew regular format and do follow-up first before we do what? hashtag Snell Talk. Because I've realized the gift Apple gave you. We heard from many Upgradians that Apple sent an email to iPhone upgrade program subscribers last week, mm-hmm. encouraging them to upgrade with the tagline, this upgrade goes to 11. They yep. finally did the Spinal Tap joke. Yeah, you know, they did a Spinal Tap reference a couple years ago in a slide that was a goes to 11, and I don't even remember what it was about. And um, people told me about it. And it, my my concern now, honestly, is that nobody even realizes it's a Spinal Tap no, reference. No, it, it, it is a reference it in is. popular culture. Yeah, um, yeah, goes to 11 is like it goes way beyond what you'd expect because it goes to 11 instead of 10, which, I mean, that is the joke. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's good. Uh, how, how could you not, with the iPhone 11, make a joke about how it goes to 11? So I'm glad to hear that there's some, somebody in Apple's email marketing um, is making a Spinal Tap reference. Bless you, whoever you are. Mystery person. Yeah, they finally did it, though. They the did it. You did it. We did it, everybody. Yay! So, so happy birthday, Jason. Snow. I'm never picking Spinal Tap reference again. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, there is always the possibility of Mac OS 11. That can always happen. Oh, man, you're right. It could. One day. You're right. Okay. All right. Spinal Tap forever then. And I feel like Federighi would do it, but we also felt like that with iOS 11, but he didn't. All right. So let's do our hashtag Snell Talk question. Considering that we are preparing ourselves for another Mac OS release, we're going to go to a question from Such, who asks, Jason, what is your favorite state or national park in California? Well, I mean, I have to say Yosemite. It's the obvious choice, but it's also the right choice. Yosemite National Park is spectacular. If you haven't been, you should go sometime. You should yes, probably do it sometime, right? It's like three and a half hours from San Francisco. It is not close, but it's great. And then you can make a side trip to the town I grew up in, which you don't bother. It's not that interesting. Is it closer <laughs> to San Jose? No. Oh, it's about the, it's it. about the it's about the same. Okay. It's about the same because you have to you have to go east. You have to drive east to get there. But it is, um, it is spectacular, and uh, I was just there. In fact, a few weeks ago, and I love it. It's uh, wonderful. I will also uh, put a shout out to the uh, Point Reyes National Seashore, which I love, and I was just there about a month ago, yeah. and that's my favorite beach. I like that. So I'll... shout out to Point Reyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the, yeah. The, the, shout out to the seashore. Before. Yeah. Uh, that's a tongue twister if you say it too fast. Shout out she to the seashore. She sells shout outs to the seashore. Yeah, exactly right. Mm-hmm. And uh, historically, I will say uh, shout out to Columbia State Historic Park, which is basically where I grew up. And it's an old gold rush town that you that is intact. And you can go visit it and take a stagecoach ride if you really want to. And uh, yeah, that was my childhood at the uh, at the State Historic Park. So there you go. Three parks for one Snell Talk question. Wow. Who could have imagined such a thing? I could keep going, but I'll stop there. It's probably best to stop. That's I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest I, that we hashtag stop. park talk. That'll be our follow up. Yes, 
No. Uh, thank you so no. much, Asaj, for that question. I've been sitting on that one for a while, waiting for the next macOS release. So, and here we go. This is see, Cross look, fingers. there's like a whole content strategy when it comes to snail talk. I don't just like pick these things at random. I have, I have questions that are years old at this point, and I'm just mm. waiting for the right time to use them. So, if you've ever so sent the- in a question and thought, oh, I didn't pick mine. That doesn't mean it's not going to get picked. So you don't like print out the Snell Talk questions on like a piece of paper and put it in a big plastic globe and that that is that has like air blowing through it and then reach in and pick one out. You don't do that. You you actually the fix is in. You've just got a whole like system of Snell Talk collection collected questions. Personally, I would. If call they're not it more... chosen randomly, they are selected. They're hand selected by you. They're curated yes, by you. They are curated by me. One, right. Every single episode, they are curated. They, there is no... there's somebody out there now who's very angry that that you're unfairly. Uh, I think it's the right move. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's actually fairly doing it because I'm picking based on what could be the most interesting thing to ask on this episode. Uh, or um, I just, I mean, some of them are just like, oh, I like that question, I'll ask it. But uh, that that's not necessarily how it works. So. Thank you so much. If you ever want to send, just as I said, hashtag small talk question, just send out a tweet. And yours may be included in a future episode. Who knows when? That's not how it works. <laughs> uh, I don't know what else to say other than aloha. Uh, okay, uh, so we're going to talk about Deep Fusion. This was the um, camera feature that's going to be coming to iOS later on this year. Uh, it was has been dubbed by many sweater mode because it was the, if you remember, during the iPhone presentation, iPhone 11 presentation, Phil Schiller showed off a, a weird photo of a man in a sweater um, and was talking about how much better the photo looks. Uh, there's some press last week, and now the 13.2 beta is out. Um, and we now have explanations, but much better explanations which obviously have yes. come from Apple via, uh, we got a great article from Matthew Panzerino, and I'm going to put in uh, the show notes a link to uh, Jonathan Morrison, TOD Today. Uh, he did a great YouTube video about this too, kind of just like in more clear terms, explaining what this mode of photography will actually be able to do for you as an iPhone uh, 11 owner. In essence... Much sharper photos in okay lighting. So basically, deep fusion kicks in if it's not a night photo and it's not a smart HDR photo. That is when it will kick in. So it's when lighting is mostly okay and what you get at the end of it is a much sharper image. That is, in essence, what's going on here. So it's got to be well lit, sort of evenly lit. Because if it's, I think this is what happened with me because I tried this a bunch and I couldn't, see any difference and i think it's because i had shots where there were brighter and darker parts and i think what's happening is it's saying i'm going to use smart hdr for this image because i want to be able to get the brighter and darker mm-hmm. parts rather than using uh, deep fusion the the issue is there is no way of knowing when an image has been processed right this is a marketing feature and i i get why they're like oh no no we don't we don't it's just you're just taking a picture right like smart hdr it's sort of like you're just taking a picture don't worry about it on the other hand, I'm a little surprised that because it's a feature that matters enough that they're marketing it as Deep Fusion, that they don't have, you know, a little DF yeah. or just a little star, a little Anything. Daring Fireball star. They could just toss that in there if they want to. But um, something to indicate uh, that this is going on because at least all of us are kind of scratching our heads about, is it working? But you can you can tell when it is. I've, I've shot a couple of them that I think are very clearly Deep Fusion because of the detail that I'm yep. getting that I wouldn't otherwise be getting. 
and I've seen some like videos and stuff that like you can see when it happens if you're very quick. If you take a picture and go straight to the camera roll, the right. picture changes. Like the processing is complete. Yeah, because it's it's still processing. Yeah. Um, also, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, your uh, your friend uh, Henry Casey. Mm-hmm own sweaters and tom's guide had him bring in his sweaters <laughs> and there's a story that is actually a really good example of this but they they picked up from apple's sweater photo and there are pictures of henry uh wearing yeah look at that three different sweaters Henry's wearing a lot of sweaters there good work henry and there's a little slider so you can compare like the non-deep fusion sweater to the deep fusion sweater it's actually pretty good so uh you know if you like pictures you know the day this came out i was wearing a sweater well, of course, everybody has to. <laughs> I thought, God, boy, perfect synergy. There is a weird thing with this, which is frustrating to me. Is the new feature, the overcropping feature, right? So, like the automatic, like at, capture outside of the frame. When you know, I was, we've been talking about this a lot. The idea that, like, take a picture and with the regular wide lens and the ultra wide lens captures some data, and then using AI, it can bring people into the photo that you cropped out. Deep Fusion doesn't work with this, and if you have that feature turned on, Deep Fusion will never work, which is probably why this feature is turned off by default, but it's very frustrating, I think, and it's super weird that they've got Uh two new features for the camera, and they 100% conflict with each other to the point that you can't use them both. I'm a little surprised that there isn't a way, with all of the intelligent stuff that they're doing, I'm a little surprised that there isn't a way for them to detect which feature is better yes, in a given moment. exactly. And if it detects, because the way that the outside the frame is apparently working is it's not capturing that. Okay, we, we don't really know. It may be capturing the wide and the narrow, you know, the wide and ultra wide, let's say, every time. Um, but But what it's doing, whether it captures it or not, is it's seeing if there's something off the edge of the frame. So I guess it's capturing it and then looking, it's using machine learning to say, is there something around the edge of the frame that is cut off that might be worth saving? And if it is, then it keeps it. So it's not keeping every single image. You can't just go out there with this feature turned on and take a picture and then go to the crop tool yep. and then r- uncrop it. That actually won't work, which, you know, I kind of would like that feature. But yep. th- but Apple has decided that's not what they're going to do. What they want to do, and video works the same, much the same way is they're using their machine learning to say, oh, there's a person right on the edge of the frame or right outside the frame or an animal or something like that. And that's a shape that is something that we think might have value. And so we're going to keep it and we're going to and we're going to make a, a smart crop or make it available to smart crop. What surprises me is that they I'm sure there's a very specific technical reason that they don't have the ability to say, what do I want to do? Oh, they press the button. What do I want to do? And determine whether, based on what they see, they want to go ahead with Deep Fusion or they want to go ahead with the uh, crop outside the frame. But they apparently can't do that. So it's too bad because that would be the best thing here is like, hey, camera, figure it out. Like, figure it out. Do I do smart HDR? Do I do night mode? Do I do deep fusion? Do I do crop outside the frame? Give me both. Like, give me two images. Yeah, right? I think they can't. I, I actually think physically they can't. It's just too much processing. I think that whatever they're doing, it wouldn't surprise me if, because this feature exists and it's turned off, that they they thought they could get that auto detection to work, and they couldn't. Yeah. would not surprise me if that's actually the story behind the scenes, is like they really thought they could auto detect it. It may be that later on... They do. 
right? Like it could the, be. It yeah. could also be just the complexity of it that led Deep Fusion to be in a later beta. It will be something that they could fix later, but I wouldn't bet on it. It feels to me like they they ran into a roadblock here. But because yeah. yeah, you shouldn't have to toggle a, a setting, and that's a that's a really cool feature that's turned off, which is really too bad. Yeah. So I hope they can fix it in software, but it may be that they can't. I don't know. If you are interested in learning very minute details about capture outside of the frame, Federico went into a lot of depth on this on Connected yeah. last week, and. You can hear me just becoming more and more confused, and then he and then we get to the resolution of it. It's a very confusing topic. It's wacky. Like like the video capture, what it will actually do is like if somebody walks off the edge, it will be like, oh, there's a person walking off the edge of the frame. I'm gonna hold on to that person. Like <laughs> and that's machine learning. That's like there's a person or a cat or whatever, there's a an object, and I think it's important. And that's how it's doing it. And it's doing it so that you don't lose that moment because that person is outside of the frame. What it's not doing is just capturing two videos and saying, which one do you want to use? So there's a lot of wacky... It's it's pretty wacky. And we, we as commentators about this stuff, are trying to understand it and explain it to people who want to know how it works, where Apple is really thinking of the vast majority of iPhone users who don't want to know how it works and don't care how it works and are not going to change the settings. They're just going to press the button. And for, for that's what the feature is built for. It's literally built... Uh, it's better this way, I think, is the argument, is that most people will never go consult the second video and recrop their video. But if the machine learning algorithm can see that your kid was just outside a frame and put him back inside the frame automatically, then you you know you win. That's the best scenario for most people. But for us, we're trying to figure out like how does this work? What is it doing? How do we control it if you do want to take more control of it? And it is kind of fascinating to see how many different things are going on inside the camera app. Like Apple is doing a lot. They're being very aggressive about this. Oh, by the way, I want to mention um, pet hair. And uh, I mean, I think hair in general, it's not just sweaters. There's lots of detail. But one of the things that I've seen, like I have a black cat and um, I don't know whether it's all deep fusion or whether it's also some smart HDR. But what I've noticed is um, I have been able to take way better pictures of my cat than I used to because black cats are very hard. They're, they're you know, they're reflective and dark and like they're just really hard to take pictures of. And uh, with Deep Fusion, uh, I think, again, I'm not sure, but I think it's Deep Fusion. Um, it, I've been impressed with the pictures I've been able to take that I haven't been able to, to capture of him before. So for what it's worth. Yeah. So this is in beta. It will probably be out probably in a couple of weeks for everybody to try it. I haven't put the 13.2 beta on my phone. Uh, I'm just going to wait for that one. The the mid-cycle betas I, I never put on my phone. I actually didn't even put 13 on my phone this year. I just waited because mm. uh, things were so difficult, right? <laughs> but yeah. but uh, I'm not, I, you know, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of just waiting my time on this one. Uh, I noticed on Twitter, Jason, that you uh, said that you got a bunch of NFC stickers and I'm assuming that they're for shortcuts <laughs> And I'm wondering yeah. if you can just give us an idea as to what you're using them for. Sure. So thank you to Matthew Casanelli who recommended uh, where he got. He handed me an NFC sticker at WWDC, anticipating that this would um, that this would happen. But um, 
it was enabled, the the uh, use of an NFC sticker to trigger a shortcut was enabled in iOS 13.1, which just came out. And I thought I wanted to play around with this. Um, and so I bought on uh, one of his recommendations that he posted on his blog, and we'll put a link to, in the show notes to what I bought, um, a roll of like 10 NFC stickers from Amazon. They're just white stickers. You can order, you know, you could order 50 custom printed Relay FM NFC stickers if you want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just got these little white uh, stickers and they've got a little NFC chip in them. And basically um, think of it like Apple Pay. If you if you wave your phone over it, it detects that it's there. And the way it works with shortcuts is you open a, a, a shortcuts automation tab and you add a new item and the automation trigger is... Uh, an NFC scan and then you tap on that and it says okay you know scan the sticker and you have to tap and then scan it scan the NFC code um, amiibos work for this too by the yeah, way do. They do. <laughs> anything with an NFC sticker will do it so you do that and then you build your shortcut and then anytime you have and I think your phone has to be un, has to be on I, I think it, it can't be sleeping but it doesn't have to be unlocked and you tap it on a sticker and the shortcut fires. So that's pretty cool. So I thought I want to experiment with this and I only have the one sticker and I want to sort of try it out where I can actually just buy some stickers and stick them places and see if I use this. So I stuck a sticker on the uh, post uh, by my mailbox at the front of my house with the idea that if I'm coming home in the evening and it's late um, and I can't see the you know the walkway to the front door clearly i can actually scan that sticker uh, as i go by i tag that sticker and it will turn off or it will turn on the light at the front door and unlock my front door hmm. so i'm trying that one and then i have in our back bedroom um it gets really damp in the winter so i have a dehumidifier on a smart switch and i have that running on a on a cycle but there are times when i'm back there and i think i really need to turn on the dehumidifier and i have to you know open up the home app and go find the smart switch and turn it on i guess i could use siri for that too but what i'm going to experiment with is now i have a sticker on the dehumidifier and if i tap that with my phone what it will do is turn on the dehumidifier and actually turn on the ceiling fan uh, to circulate the air in the in the room, and that's just a single shortcut. And I'm probably going to stick one in the kitchen somewhere that will take whatever I'm playing on my phone and send it to my HomePods, because that's a scenario I have sometimes where I'm listening to a podcast, and Ooh, then I want to yeah. transfer it to the HomePods, and it's usually when I'm in the kitchen doing something and I want to get it on the big speakers, and so I can stick that sticker somewhere and just do that, and then I don't even have to go to overcast or whatever and fiddle well, that with is the, as well currently a missing thing. feature from ios 13 right yes the tapping it on the home pods uh-huh. to transfer it over right which is i think a very similar kind of thing but i don't i don't think is is there yet so that's that's a way to do it and i've heard from people that that's a that's a, a pretty popular one is these kind of airplay directive on a sticker so that if you are in a context you know you walk into a room and you want to put it you know, put the audio on the speakers that are in that room, you can actually just tag the NFC sticker. And Android's had NFC stickers for a long time yep. that uh, the OS has been able to uh, access and do stuff with, like connect to Wi-Fi and all of that. But really for, for iPhone, it has taken until um, user automation has access to it, which is with 13.1. So it's been fun. Is it practical? 
I don't know. I mean, that's kind of why I bought the stickers is to find out. That's my job, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my my job is to live with it and find out if it's practical and come up with some ideas of how it might be practical and then disseminate that to all of you. And then you can make your judgment about whether, you know, it's a dumb idea or whether it's a good idea or whether you already bought stickers because it was so exciting. <laughs> like Those yeah. are the three, I think, options there. The only one I have right now, I put a, a NFC sticker on my carry-on suitcase. Uh, right now, all it does is turn on low power mode. But I'm thinking about what else I can add to that as like a you're traveling now thing. Like I m- might want to turn on the uh, like the hue scene that i have that cycles the lights right that kind of stuff so i'm I'm working out what to add to that and and it can be literally any shortcut that's the thing that's really amazing is that you can have it be something incredibly complex that is going to a web service and you know like all of these things that it can do it's just a matter of what's practical like because again that's something you could do but what's the scenario there but yeah setting a scene Anything like that totally makes sense. So I, I, I'm, I think it's a fun idea, and we'll see where it goes. And and um, I've been spending some time with that, and also with the shortcuts that are in the home app automation, which are limited in what they can do. But I've been playing around with those too. So it's been it's been kind of fun. Today's episode is brought to you by Bombus. If you can't remember the last time you refreshed your sock drawer, maybe it's time for an Upgrade. Bombas socks are made. (laughs) Bombas socks are made with comfort innovations like arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed. And that is all sock speak for super comfortable. That's all you need to know. They're really comfortable. They come in hundreds of colors and styles, making them perfect for men, women, children, everybody. Bombas has a new line of merino wool socks as well that are made from soft, warm, and naturally moisture wicking merino wool. Bomba socks will keep you cool and dry on your morning run and stay comfortable in your office's freezing air conditions. They are ready for anything. And for every pair of socks you buy, Bombas will donate a pair to someone in need so you can be part of something good whilst refreshing that sock drawer. I have been wearing Bomba socks all summer. I bought a bunch of their ankle socks and they are without a shadow of a doubt the most comfortable that I've ever worn. Uh, I am a man who gets like from new shoes and stuff like they can really bother me, but I really like the kind of the ankle support that they have as like a padded part around the ankle, around the back, like around the heel and stuff. And that is actually really good for me. And I have found them super comfortable and I'm going to be buying even more of them. So go to bombas.com slash upgrade and you will get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash upgrade for 20% off. Go there right now, bombas.com slash Upgrade. Our thanks to Bombas for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Socks. I love socks. More sock sponsors. Can we just go all sock sponsors from now on, Mike? I'll do whatever I can, Jason. Okay, thank what, you. What I can do there is is not a lot, but but I will try. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm very excited as always to uh, get socks. Be sponsored by socks. Let me get. You I'm wearing socks right now. Good. Good. That's always good news, Jason. <laughs> I am very excited to talk about Microsoft. I know. Are you feeling okay? <laughs> I'm feeling very okay, my friend. I, I I am also excited to talk about Microsoft because Microsoft did some stuff last week that's really interesting mm-hmm. and um, I think very clever. Mm-hmm. And I will now point out at this point that the last time Microsoft did something that I thought was really interesting and really clever, it failed miserably. So I'm not sure it's going to succeed, that? but I... 
I am the all the metro stuff they did where oh. they were like and the doing a touch interface that had touch apps and all that and I, I was think like this we is... were excited about the uh the surface studio was it called the studio we were excited yeah. about that too yeah that too but but like and well that hasn't failed as much as the metro no. stuff failed but anyway this stuff is fascinating and I think it's interesting on its own and I think it's interesting in the context of what Apple is uh is thinking of doing in the yep. future too they had a huge event they had a bunch of updates. We'll talk about a few of the things that are releasing this year in a little bit. But it's, I want to talk you through kind of my thing with this last week. So I was recording a show. I just finished recording the show. And I went onto Twitter and I saw that they were having an event. And people were like, oh, this is a really great event. So I was like, all right, I'll tune in. I tuned in five minutes before they showed off the Neo. <laughs> right? And it's like, oh, okay. Thank Good you, timing. Microsoft. Um, so what we're talking about mainly today is two devices that are coming next year, holiday 2020, that Microsoft have created that are dual-screen devices. So the first is the Surface Neo, which is the first one that they showed off. It has two 9-inch screens that are that have a hinge, is a hinge down the middle. It's a 360-degree hinge, which means it can basically go from a book, right? So the screens are on the inside. You can fold it all the way back around again. So you have screens on both sides, right? So like you can fold it out and on itself. It's like all the way around. Uh, it runs a new variant of Windows called Windows X, which is <laughs> very confusing to me when I see it, but it's called Windows X. It's actually an X. It's like Windows 10, but with an X. But with an X. Apparently. I honestly feel like they're just trolling at this point, but I love it. These, these devices need developer support to work. Um, as a three, as I said, 360 degree hinge it has pen and keyboard support. Now they had some really cool videos. I'll include those in the show notes, including some like hands-on stuff that like the Verge did. But like the product videos are really nice. Uh, this is one moment in the product video which I my mind exploded. Right where it's like the it's floating in the air and it opens up, and then they have this sound like as a keyboard flips around and magnetically attaches to the bottom screen. When yeah. that happens, you get a touch bar. But, which is, but, but what I, I want to be clear here, it doesn't actually float. No, no, that's true. <laughs> and it doesn't yes. actually go... But if it did, it'd be even happens. better. Uh, but yeah, mm. so if you put the, the keyboard on the... like, So you're folding it like a laptop, right? So you have one screen on the bottom, one screen in front of you. You put the keyboard on the bottom screen. You have a touch bar above it. If you move the keyboard up, you get a trackpad below it. Very clever. Like very, just really smart. It looks like it's been like the things that they're showing seem really well thought through about the way that people might use these devices. Um, so they showed this one off first. Yeah. Can we talk about that now, or do you want to go on to the next one? I think we should. I think I want to just introduce both of them, and then we can talk. Okay. About them both. Is that right. is that fair? Because th- there's a lot of overlap, I think, between the two. Sure. That's fine. Sure. So everyone's minds are blown by this, right? Like people are going crazy, right? As you would imagine, it's like Microsoft have if, like they've shown us something, and it's like seems really exciting. And Panos Panay, by the way, their chief product officer, he is a showman. He's very, very good at displaying products, right? Like probably one of, if not the best out there right now. Like I've only seen a few of his stuff, but like this, the way he demoed all of this these products and spoke about them. Very good. I like their staging. Everyone's low down. He's walking up and down the aisles like that. Microsoft, have, they've they've been putting some thought into this, right? Like we've all been sleeping on them a bit, but they've been moving forward. So everyone's minds are blown by the Neo's introduction. It seems like Panos Pene is wrapping up, like he's going off stage, like puts one finger up in the air and he's like, ah, oh, but I'm not done. 
and then they roll a video. And it looks like another demo video of the Surface Neo. You have an individual and they're walking along and they have the, the, the Neo and they close it up and then something starts ringing and then they pick a smaller one out of the bag. It's a small one. It's a phone. Dual 5.6-inch displays on the Surface Duo. Uh, there you go. Uh, it is uh, unfolded. It is an 8.3-inch tablet, right, if you unfold the two, which is interesting. Um, it is a smaller dual-screen device. It runs Android. And uh, Microsoft yeah. don't want you to call this a phone. They want to they wanna kind of move away from that, but it is something to replace your smartphone. So... Holiday 2020. Yes, let's be clear here. This is a product that isn't going to come out until the end of next year. Yes. These two products, if they if they do come out, it will be the end of next year. Now, again, it's like a lot can change in a year, but they are going the right way about this when they talk about why they're doing it because they want to get these into developers' hands in, in like within sure. a few months' time. And they because both of these devices are going to require developer support especially the Neo, which is the, the Windows X version, because that one could just straight up fail, right, if developers don't get on board, while the other one is an Android phone. Sure. Right. 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 And in the Android space already, there is already a lot of these types of devices. Developers are getting yeah. on board of it. Microsoft and Google are working together, but Google had already exactly. started to push towards this anyway. So there is there is more of a story there. Um, but the the it seems a little unclear to me, at least, like what is needed for a, an app to run on Windows X? Like, do you have to start from the beginning? Like, will, will things run at all? Microsoft's not saying a ton about Windows yeah. X right now, other than it's going to need buy-in from their developer community. So, yeah, go ahead. I, I, if you've got more to say, I'm, it's fascinating. But the fact that it, it, it's like a lot can change in a year, but I think they're doing this in the right way. They, they really, they know that they're showing their hand way earlier than they should. Um, especially because in a lot of the coverage, then they're saying like a lot of the details of this device might change. Like they haven't even decided if it's going to have a camera on the on the right. duo. Like they've not made a decision yet. Now, this is a fundamental difference between Microsoft and Apple, right? Because yes. Apple could literally have something in their lab that they're planning on releasing at a, a special event in October of 2020, mm-hmm. and that that product, if it existed, would ship before these products, right? Yes. Like, and, and they that... wouldn't need to do the developer like. Let's come on, bring you around. Well, We're gonna. Get, Apple doesn't need to do that. In, in fact, I would say this is one of my thoughts about this: is when you look at something like the Surface Neo, which is something that we've kind of talked about in the context of the iPad, yes, uh, or in context of the MacBook, we've talked about the idea that. Apple's ideal laptop is probably two screens <laughs> mm-hmm. where you could type on one or use it for other things. And then another one that's sort of like the the alternative screen. And that that is a product that we both laugh about because it's like, finally, no keyboard travel at all. Hooray, we win. And, um, and yet, I think also kind of is a possible future direction for them. And you look at the Surface Neo and that's basically what that is. Yes. But if you think about iOS and multi-window and all of that that they put in iOS 13, like you could do this basically today, mm-hmm. I think, on iOS if you had a product like this because a- iOS apps now can support running in multiple spaces essentially and across two screens would presumably be 
uh, one of the things that it would be capable of doing. So that's kind of fascinating, the idea that this could potentially be a direction that Apple could go with the iPad or with a product that is also an iOS product, but is not quite an iPad. Um, I think what's I think what I would say about both of these is I know how much you love foldable phones yep. and how fascinated you are by them. Yep. I think what's interesting here is that these aren't that quite. These are dual screen devices, folding dual yeah. screen devices, which is not the same. Like there's no continuity between the screens. Well, there is. Yep. But you can No, have because apps. you pop you pop the screens open and it's two screens. Mm-hmm. There's not there's there's a gutter between them. Yep. Uh there's bezels between them. You've got two screens. You can use them both and they can both work together. Mm-hmm. But what you don't get that the folding phones are trying to give you is the illusion One that it's thing. or yeah. even not illusion, the reality that it is a single screen. This is not what Microsoft is even attempting to do here. I think maybe that's a smart move because the yes. folding screen tech is not ready yet. No. No, I see what you mean. Like when you say continuity, like you mean like physical. Well, like I think of it as more using these screens together. And really, oh, like yeah, I'm, for sure, I'm more interested in devices that change than their form factor than I am in purely foldable phones as we've seen them now. Like these devices excite me as much, if not more, than like the Galaxy Fold does because. What I really love about the way that that they're building this device is what they keep referring to as postures. And you can see it in a bunch of the coverage, right? That there are so many ways you could use this device. You can hold it like an open book. You can flip one screen around on the back and just use one screen. You can set it down and use it like a laptop with one screen on the bottom and one screen above. Or like one that I absolutely love in some of their videos. You can stand it up horizontally, slightly bent in, right? So it's it's maintaining itself, like you're standing a book up on a table. And then use the keyboard Mm -hmm. in front of you. And you have two large screens that you can use. Like personally, like I understand there's a bezel, but I would accept the bezel. The bezel would not bother me. Because I'm able to use these two screens. Like, it is very adaptable. I agree. I just want to make it clear that the, this is the difference between these and what yes. the Samsungs of the world are trying to do, which is like, and then you open it up and it's a tablet. Oh, it's like my, Microsoft is basically saying, yeah, that stuff isn't ready. And we want to have a, a solid hinge on these things. And we think yep. that there's a lot of value in having two touchscreen displays in terms of all the different things you can do with them. And I think, uh, again, I want to think that they're right. I am fascinated by this. We have talked about this in the context of the iPad, you know, slash a laptop from Apple. And yeah, I I mean, there are studies that go back decades, like three or four decades about how people are more productive with uh, multiple displays, especially in the era of small displays on computers. And I look at this and I think, okay, you've got a lot of different things you can do with the Neo, especially if we think about the the bigger one that's basically two iPads and a sandwich mm-hmm. um, hinged. You can that's a two screen iPad. You lay it flat on a table or sit it upright, like you said. Um, but if you put it in a laptop configuration, you've got uh, you know a horizontal and vertical surface. You can put you can snap that keyboard on it, and now you've got a physical keyboard and like a touch bar. And you pop it off. You could also just use it as a software keyboard. There's like so many different things that you could potentially do with that postures, as they say. And, uh, you know, I think that's very interesting. The The open question is, 
what are the use cases? And will there be ones that are so compelling that it's worth, you know, the the expense of having a two touchscreen kind of device? But as an iPad user, I look at this and I think, wow, it would really be nice if I could have that um, that laptop-like typing plane instead of having... I mean, I already have that with the bridge keyboard, right? <laughs> but this would be a physical keyboard and a touch bar, and I could take it off, and now I've got two screens, and I can have the the bottom screen doing something and the top screen doing something else. Like, there's... It, it is... There's a lot of potential here. And mm-hmm. then for the small one, I think similarly, there's a real question to ask, which is, is a two-screen device that you open, like a clamshell device that you open, um, a more natural and appropriate feeling device than a foldable phone like we've seen from the companies that are that have announced these foldable phones is this actually just as productive or more productive to have this kind of like i've got stuff on the left and stuff on the right kind of approach uh, and then i can flip it sideways and it's like a little tiny laptop and you know i i don't know the answer to that question but it seems very practical and very realistic in a way that the folding phones still seem like wacky ideas that are not for most people like microsoft seems to have done a lot more thinking about what is um practical to build mm-hmm. and i think that's i, I their credit I am sure Microsoft would love for this device to just be one piece of glass, right? That still can fold the way it folds, right? Like that's the the, the ideal, right? That there isn't a hinge. Like there is a hinge, but there's no gap between them, right? Like imagine such a beautiful idea of technology, but we're not there yet. We may never be. We're not sure. And like... And- and I would say that the the problem with that continuum is that there's one scenario for that, which is it's either open or it's closed. Because... Yeah, you could make a laptop with a continual screen, but isn't that a little bit weird? Like, and is it really necessary that you've got kind of like the the curvy part that curves up to the top mm-hmm. part of the? I, I think there's an argument to be made that having two discrete screens in a lot of cases is fine, and in a laptop configuration is maybe better. Yeah. I don't know. I, it's nevertheless, I, it's an argument that could be made. I feel like that that Microsoft had decided that they will make this device as it is now, like as I think as great as it is now, to push their software forward until there can be more advanced, even more advanced form factors in the future, right? That's kind of my thinking on this. Like Samsung have had a lot of trouble. Uh, uh, Huawei are having a lot of trouble. Microsoft have decided to make something that many people will call compromise because it doesn't look like those devices, but I believe will actually be a more successful device in, for now, right? It's because it's going to work. Let's talk about Microsoft and Google, Microsoft and Android. So I want to read a quote from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, right? Remember that as I say these words. The operating system is no longer the most important layer for us. What is most important for us is the app model and the experience. How people are going to write apps for Duo and Neo will have a lot more to do with each other than just writing a Windows app or an Android app because it's going to be about the Microsoft graph. This is from a a Wired article. Isn't that bananas? You know, if you've been watching how Satya Nadella has been managing Microsoft and, and the path they've been taking, it's not surprising. If you're thinking about the grand context of Microsoft in history and its history, yeah, and how its executives have uh, the relationship they've had with Windows over the years and the power it's gotten from Windows, it's staggering. It's mind blowing. But 
in terms of where they've been headed, like it's it's not like first off, what else are they going to do? They yep. don't have a, a a small device operating system, and and for a long time now, Satya Nadella has been saying how what Microsoft's goal is is to have Microsoft's services across all platforms. Right? They want to be on Mac and Windows and iOS and Android, and they want to be in the cloud, and they want everybody using OneDrive and Office three sixty five, and that is that is their vision: is Microsoft stuff everywhere, not just on Windows, um, and so. Knowing that, it's not. It's reasonable that that Microsoft would actually release a piece of hardware that doesn't run their own operating system, and yet, wow, yeah. <laughs> like, like I mean, this is walking the walk essentially. This is them saying, "Yeah, we know we um, don't have it. We don't have it, and if we had it, you wouldn't want it, and so we're just gonna work with Google and put it on Android." Because in the end. What's going to make this the best product? And, you know, it's going to be tailored to all of the stuff that Microsoft cares about. And Microsoft's customers are going to be the ones looking at it. And mm-hmm. Microsoft is going to use its apps to help push this as a good shape for that kind of product. But still, what a change from the era of Steve Ballmer where Windows was the most important thing. Just it had to be about things running on Windows. Yeah, and they are skinning Android a little bit. Right, like it's not just, they're not going with stock Android, they're not going wild with it, like they're working with Google. Because right now, like Google is, and has for a while, been actively discouraging too much customization of Android. And like with their biggest partners, like Samsung, getting them to scale back the wild stuff and make it look more consistent. So there is a part of that going on, but but Microsoft is going to be making changes uh, and integrating with their services a lot more. But I really like, so again, I, I want to point people to a, an interview that Panos Panay gave uh, to The Verge on The Verge cast. And he's just like, look, we want people to be where they want to be on the operating systems that they use. Like, it's wild for us to try and bring people to something else when on these types of devices they want to use the apps and services that they know and they're on Android, right? Like, that they know they can't try and build something again like Windows Phone because it failed horrifically, which is why I think actually Windows 10 could be a risk depending on how difficult it is to make apps work. Like, I wonder why... Do you mean Windows X? What did I, I think say? you mean Windows X. I meant Windows, Windows X. 10. Well, Windows X, iPhone just ruined me. Uh, Windows X could be a risk um, because of that, right? I, I wonder why they didn't just go with Android on both of these devices, but they decided not to. I mean, they, they do feel that this other device is a convertible. It's a tablet. Yep. It's a laptop. It's 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 the class of device that Windows excels on. Um, it gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit because I'm thinking back to when they made those bold moves back in the day to do the Metro interface and say, we're going we're gonna to do the first Surface and it's going to have... Uh, a touch screen and it's going to have touch controls and it's going to be great. And I sat there thinking, oh my God, my, here comes Microsoft. They got it. And then and this is the first demo. And then late in that demo, they say, also, we have this compatibility mode where you can plug in a mouse and just run Microsoft Office and then it just looks like a PC and you don't use any of the touch screen features. And I thought, no, no, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're undercutting yourself already. I think it's a, a great tragedy that Microsoft... Um, had the ability to build something, the vision to build something like that, and then internally, politically, you know, did not have the confidence to step away from Windows. 
What concerns me about the rumors about Windows X is that originally the idea was that it was only going to run these kind of like new app paradigms and it wasn't going to use old Windows stuff at all. And by the time it got to ship, uh, or not ship because that's 2020, it got to announce period. The story was that your Windows apps would run in a compatibility box. And I had that moment of just like, oh, I, I like I get it. Yeah. And we'll see how it works. But it also feels like we, you know, once again are hedging um, because we have this huge install base that exists and we're afraid that they won't come with us unless we bring the old apps along. And maybe it's the right decision, but I think um, it it made the other product back in the day fail because you didn't have to use the new thing and developers didn't need to build for it. So we'll see. I think I think Windows X is... The devil's going to be in the details and it's going to be in the uh, developer story. We talk a lot about how developers on Apple's platforms feel about Apple and how they can often get frustrated about Apple. But Apple is so lucky to have so many developers who are excited about building for their platform and adopting whatever the next thing is that Apple's doing that they announced at WWDC. Because with Microsoft, you can see how it can go the other way, which is Microsoft wants to drag its developers and its users forward. And they have a very large base of developers and users and they they don't want to go and this is time and again this has been like the problem with microsoft is they've got all of this success but they can't pull their user base along and i think it's hurt microsoft over time so we'll see how windows x fares but you know i think it's uh i think it's a cool idea so microsoft also announced updates to its other product lines for this year and including is the surface pro x which doesn't run windows x uh but the reason i want to mention this is it features microsoft is that a is that surface pro x or surface pro 10 i think, I think it's maybe x. it's surface pro 10 uh you think it's x i think it's x i don't remember okay. now but it's it's, it's a capital letter x I, i'm pretty sure it's x but anyway whether it's x or 10 i don't know surface pro capital letter x uh it runs a microsoft designed arm chip Mm-hmm. which is very interesting, <laughs> right? They worked with Qualcomm. Yeah, how about that? They designed their own chip, and they're putting it in a product that they're calling for, like, their you know their most power usury uh, customers. And this is very interesting because this is Microsoft making their own chips, right? This is why we say Apple stuff's so good because they make their own chips. Well, Microsoft's doing it too. Also, they had some Surface laptops come out, revised Surface laptops. They were taking shot after shot at Apple about the keyboards and all that kind of stuff, kind of funny. Uh, 13 mm-hmm. and 15 inch. The 15 inch has AMD chips inside. Uh, on the Vergecast, it was very fun to hear Panos Panay dance around these ideas, saying that Intel is a wonderful partner. They're working on really great things, but it's clear that Microsoft also want more flexibility with their own oh. hardware. So, so they're, they're literally their announcement encompasses something they designed, um, Qualcomm, Intel, and AMD. They're all involved in some way, yeah. which is fascinating, yeah. right? Like Microsoft's just like we we're maybe agnostic on processors right now. Um, it's I think it's another good lesson maybe learned from 
what um, Apple has succeeded doing, which is not necessarily you need to become your own chip designer. I'm not sure Microsoft's really going to go down that route, although, you know, who knows. But I think it does say something that um, they, you know, there's value in in not being entitled or indentured to one supplier mm-hmm. and like t- lashed to Intel in the way that, that they used to be. So, yeah, it, really interesting. So I, I'm keen to see what the uh, Surface Pro X ends up being like. like there's, there's some stuff that they're saying, which is kind of wild. 13 hours of battery life, and it has a fast charge built in, which can get you in an hour to 80% battery. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So like, I think that this might be like one of the first examples of like, what would it be like if Apple went to ARM? Like, I'm keen to see how this product ends up reviewing when it comes out soon. But so that's Microsoft. Microsoft, wow, they're doing some stuff yeah. over there. Yeah, and I think what from a perspective of an Apple user, because I, I, if you listen to some podcasts like ATP and all that, they they say this, and I think they're exactly right, which is there are people who do not care about what operating system they're using. There are though <laughs> they are called Windows users. Ha <laughs> oh burn. Mm. Um. Uh, for me, I look at this and I, I say, well, this is great, but it runs Windows and I'm not interested, right? Like, I mean, that's the bottom line is that I, I think their hardware is really good. And then I think about running Windows and, a, you know, a not small part of me dies inside for a moment and then I move on and I think that's never going to happen. Come on, Apple. What I want and I hope happened a few years ago and we will start seeing the the fruits of it now is I want Apple's laptop and maybe iPad designers to look at what Microsoft's doing and have somebody there say, why aren't we doing better than them? Why, why is Microsoft doing better stuff than us in hardware design? Why is that happening? How is it that we've allowed them to creep ahead of us in all of these different areas? And how do we fix it? Mm-hmm. Because um, I think the truth is that it's very easy for Apple to get complacent. And they were, in terms of their laptop design, they set the standard for a long time. It is not a surprise why most successful premium laptops look like Apple's laptops. It's because Apple did it right and everybody else is like, oh my God, we need to just do that. Let's just do what they do. But Microsoft has pushed past them. There's just no doubt about it. I have quibbles with some of their design decisions and I hate kickstands on the surface. I hate kickstands. But um, I sure hope Apple is taking this as a challenge and that we're going to see the MacBook designs and maybe even ipad designs step up because of it that would be uh really nice all right we're gonna take a break and then talk about mac os catalina big episode mm-hmm. today jason snow today's episode is brought to you by squarespace make your next move with squarespace they will let you easily create a website for your next idea project event or maybe to your next store doesn't matter what type of website you want to build, they give you all of the tools that you need. You can register a unique domain name. You could take advantage of and customize award-winning templates and so much more. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that will let you put anything online that you need. There is nothing to install or patch or upgrade. They have all of that stuff covered for you. I've been using Squarespace probably for about a decade now for various projects, which is a wild thing to think about. That is because when I have an idea, when I have something that I want to get, make a website for, I don't want to spend tons of time either 
are learning to make a website or learning how to do it with the current web standards or all that nonsense. I don't want to know about any of that. Squarespace take care of it for me. So all I need to do is go to Squarespace, sign up, customize and pick a template that I want and then put my content in and I can do that. And I've done it many times and will continue to do it because for me, that is how I build websites. I go to Squarespace and you should try it out. If you never have, or maybe if you tried in the past, you should give it another go. Go to squarespace.com slash upgrade. You can sign up for a trial. You can go around, you can get access to all of the editing tools. You can make your website. And then when you're ready to publish it to the world, you sign up for one of their plans that start at just $12 a month. And if you use the offer code UPGRADE, you will get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash upgrade and the code UPGRADE for 10% off your first purchase. So thanks to Squarespace for the support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So Mac OS Catalina is now available uh, to for free upgrade, as is usual with Mac OS. Yeah, should should be. I mean, it's it's ten as we're recording this. It's just after ten a.m. Pacific, so presumably it is rolling out um, now. My my embargo dropped as you were reading that ad, so uh, it's out. In terms of Apple PR, as far as they care, it's out. Yeah. So we're going to talk about it. So um, people should go and read your review. It's very good. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I've read it. I've read it in two different states, and I've, but it's been read by me. But I want to break down a few key questions that I have for you, and then maybe we can talk about those in a little more detail. For as much as you can sum up, what should people know before they upgrade to Catalina? Wow, a lot. A lot, and that's, I think, what makes this release so different from a lot of the recent releases. This, this isn't is a, an easy just press the update button and forget about it kind of release. This is an, this is an end of an era and the beginning of a new era, and it's an era that uh, we knew was coming for, uh, for years now, but it's here now, and I think if you're not paying attention, um, you may not realize it, but this is one of those updates that will break, by design, will break lots of stuff. So... I would recommend that nobody upgrade to Catalina until they have done the investigation of whether their apps that they rely on will still work and that their peripherals that they rely on will still work. And that's because with Catalina, Apple is removing all the 32-bit support from the operating system. And what that means effectively is... Um, stuff compiled for 32-bit, stuff compiled, uh, built using Carbon, which was essentially the compatibility, this is going back a long way, but it's the compatibility layer uh, for the old macOS APIs, the classic macOS APIs. That's how they got apps over to macOS 10 from classic macOS. And um, those apps will no longer function as well as more modern apps that are not recompiled for 64-bit will not function. And so if you've got some old app that still worked, even up to Mojave, like uh, you know our friend James Thompson is a great example, his app DragThing, which has been around for decades now, 25 years, um, it it's so old that not only is it written for the Carbon APIs, but James actually had to make a bug fix last year, and he had to build it in an emulator. Where you where you positioned that sounded like a playground, like uh, taunt. Your app's so old. Yeah, you're so old <laughs> you that you've got that you've got to make your bug an fixes <laughs> in an emulator of an old version of macOS. It's true, right? It's true. It it didn't run the tools 
to build it didn't even run on his current system. And, uh, you know, because he makes his money from PCALC and Drag Thing hasn't made money in a long time, there's no way, and he, he would need to completely rewrite it because it was based on carbon. Um, he just put it to sleep. He, he announced that it was not going to be updated and it really hasn't been updated in years other than a couple of very minor bug fixes. And there are going to be apps like that that you're like, but what do you mean? I, I'm still using it. Like we, James may know, for example, that his app is essentially untouched for years and can't survive. But if you're just a user and you're using it and it works fine, you don't know that. And that is one of the very important things to know about Catalina. I've had, I, and I don't have all the answers here, but like, are there 32-bit uh, drivers for USB peripherals? Or what about print drivers, printer drivers? Like, I, it, it's one of those things where you should do your due diligence because once you're on Catalina, that old stuff, if it hasn't been updated, will just not work. It, it's not like you can do a clever thing where you hold down control and say open it. Like, no, it will break. Um, all the QuickTime stuff, uh, quick, the old QuickTime was all 32-bit, and it's all dead. So there's the the QuickTime Player X or 10 or whatever it is, and all of that stuff still works. But the old QuickTime Player 7 and everything that was behind that, that was generating uh, .movs for, like, Call Recorder used it, like, all of these things, it's dead. So all of that software has, has to be updated. So Call Recorder, which is a tool we use to record our podcast, that got updated in the last... You know, over the last year, they've updated everything they do mm-hmm. in order to make it work. Um, but this is my warning, is what if you have a tool that you use and works fine, but unbeknownst to you, perhaps, that developer ha- is not planning on updating it, uh, can't update it, won't update it, doesn't make financial sense for them to update it. This happens a lot. I'm especially worried about like weird USB like scanners and document scanners and things like that, where you know the company that made it has moved on five models since then, and they're not going to go back and fix the drivers, and they just stop working. And if there's nothing you can do to you know, in the system, maybe there's a compatibility mode that lets you know image capture use the scanner without any drivers. Great, but like check, you need to check How? because you know. Well, so some of it is hard because you you you're gonna have to ask the developers. The one thing you can do is Saint Clair Software. Uh, has a, a piece of software that we'll put in the show notes that is uh, called Go64 that will scan your computer and show you all of the apps that are either 32-bit or are 64-bit but have some 32-bit stuff mm-hmm. attached to them. But really what you need to do is is um, look on the websites of the developers of the stuff that you rely on or... You know, if you want to go this far, install Catalina on an external drive or something and boot into it and see if you can do your job with it. But I I would be really cautious because stuff's going to break and it's going to break for a good reason, which is that this stuff is really old and Apple needs to move on. And it's given everybody a lot of time. And the developers have been aware of this for a long time. But as a user, the fact is, if you still rely on it, just don't update until you can find another solution. And in fact, I would I would even go so far as to say the the recommendation I would make is if you know that there's something you rely on and it's going to die in Catalina, start stay on Mojave or High Sierra or wherever you are and start shopping around for replacements because the replacements will run almost certainly unless it's a catalyst app will run pre Catalina. 
And you can maybe build a new workflow up on your previous version of Mac OS to the point where you're comfortable and like, yeah, okay, this is working now. And then update to Catalina and do it like that mm-hmm. rather than update to Catalina, have everything break, and then slowly put your life back together. Yeah, but you do need to start looking for that replacement because eventually you will have to upgrade. Because this is the thing is you can hold out. I mean, nobody's going to make you upgrade, but at some point the security updates will stop. And at some point you're probably going to want to buy a new Mac and the new Mac won't run anything but Catalina or further when there's a new or, or further ahead, right? A new model. And they, the new Mac hard, new Mac hardware released after today will not run 32 bit apps ever. Right. Like that's, um, I will also say if you, if you have an app, that's just an app you use occasionally that you need to run, you can emulate Mac OS. So you can emulate high Sierra or Sierra or Mojave in a virtual machine in VMware or parallels or one of these things that it is legal to emulate Mac OS on Mac hardware. And so you could do that. And I, you know, that's the example of like, if you've got Adobe illustrator, uh, CS (laughs) five and you need to open it three times a year, then you could probably suffer through a slow emulation and run it in a virtual machine on your Mac running Catalina running high Sierra inside, um, you could you could do that. That's a possibility too. But I just I want to warn our listeners, and I want to actually suggest our listeners warn their loved ones <laughs> and their friends um, that this is a big one, and that people shouldn't just dive into it. It's not like it doesn't have a bunch of new features, and it's interesting, and it's a place Apple needs to go. I think those are all true. It is also a bit buggy, and sitting out a point oh release anyway is a good idea but with this one the bar is higher this is a new era a lot of old stuff is breaking by design and if you're still using the old stuff that's fine but you can't go you can't you can't you won't get catalyst apps you won't get apple arcade but you will uh be able to use your stuff and that's the most important thing so that's my that's my warning is that this is a big one and uh, you should proceed with caution so let's say you've run Go64, you're all good. You've checked that all of the devices that you need have drivers that will have been updated, right? Like you're yep. all good. And you think to yourself, right, I want to upgrade to Catalina now. Somebody does this. What makes it worthwhile for them? Like what are the features in Catalina that you think are like stand out? They're like, these are, these are great additions to macOS and makes this a worthwhile upgrade. Well, oh, so Apple Arcade. That's is a there. big one. So if you want to play the Apple Arcade games for Mac OS, and there are a lot of them, um, I don't know if they're up yet, but they're they um, my beta. I can see them, so I think that they're they're all rolling out now. Um, uh, Catalyst. The fact is, there are going to be apps that come out for the Mac now that will require Catalina. Um, there will be a bunch of them, and the reason that they require Catalina is that they're Catalyst apps, Mac Catalyst, which is this technology that lets developers you take their iPad apps and put them on the Mac. Can I ask you about this? Because yeah. in your review, you call it Mac Catalyst all the time? Yes, that's what it's that's what it's called. That's the marketing name for it. If that's you look on Apple's web pages, Mac Catalyst. At okay. some point in the last few months, they, they have changed it from Catalyst to Mac Catalyst. I wonder if there was a trademark, something. Somebody has a trademark on Catalyst and they had to change it to Mac Catalyst. But that's... That's what they're calling it. Can we just get one word that, Macatalyst? we we'll just work with that because like, it's just easier to say. Uh, we but, can. So let me let me ask you, actually, before we dive into Macatalyst, is there anything else 
like so you've got Apple Arcade. I guess Apple TV will be part of it, right? When that when yeah, that launches, it's it's for certain models, and I think it's like 2018 and later MacBook Pros and iMacs um, for those models, and you know, like T2 processor um, coprocessor devices. Uh, you get 4K HDR video for the first time on the Mac, where even though you've got 4K and 5K displays on all these systems, the copyright holders don't didn't want computers to be able to play back 4K video for fear of piracy, which is stupid because piracy happens right. anyway. But I think I think it's all getting channeled through the T2 with DRM. Genius. I think that that's I think that that is why the uh, looking at what their restrictions are, I suspect that that is the deal they made with uh, the the content holders that Apple licenses the content from for the movies and TV shows that you buy or rent on on uh, iTunes or Apple TV. I guess yep. we need to start calling it now. So, uh, but it is there for those systems. So some systems will actually with 4K displays will actually be able to watch 4K video, which is nice. Um, so that they've broken up iTunes. So there's the music app, which is um, not in Catalyst, but is uh, it, it looks very much like a, the Catalyst apps. There's definitely this sidebar, main bar style app thing that mm-hmm. Apple's going for that they think is like, this is what apps should look like on the Mac. Um, it's simplified. It, uh, some of the features that I used in the music app are, or in iTunes are gone in the music app, which kind of bums me out. Um, and they, they kind of rearranged all the like play controls. They're all in different places now. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe there's consistency with iOS that they're looking for, but it it still does what it does. And you can play, you can still play music on your hard drive if you've got a big collection of MP3s, but it is a little more Apple Music forward by default, which is probably the right thing for them to do. Um, TV app is what we've expected. It is very similar to what we see on iOS and on on Apple TV. Um, The right down to the watch now, pain the big difference is that watch now on ios and apple tv they've got this thing where it's linked to other services so you can like you know if you watch something on hulu it knows that you just watch that on hulu and it'll say up next is the next episode on hulu and there's nothing like that on the mac so far as i can tell because there aren't those apps on the mac and i think those apis aren't there on the mac and so it just doesn't do that it's just sort of promoting the stuff that you're doing within based on what you're doing inside apple's tv app that's all it really knows about but um, and there's a podcast app. Yay! Because the podcast support in macOS before was made in like 2005. And it was all in iTunes. In iTunes. And while it worked, it was not great. And now it is literally the podcast app from the iPad. It's a, a Catalyst app. And it's it's fine. They have, over the summer, they did a bunch of stuff to make it a little more Mac-like. It's still kind of weird. Um, like I was trying to delete an episode, a download, and I was trying to click on it and I realized I needed to like control click and select delete and then confirm the delete. And then I accidentally moved my fingers, uh, right to left on the trackpad and it did a swipe to delete and deleted it immediately. And I thought, Oh, (laughs) okay. I accidentally deleted something, but it turns out that that was the fastest way to delete something was to swipe on my trackpad to delete it. It's a very iOS thing to do. And not sure if that's a very Mac thing, but I think we're going to be getting used to a bunch of weird um, weird app behaviors now with Catalyst. Um, and, and then the Finder has uh, device support now. So that's another, you know, iTunes exploded and it left all of its stuff in four different places. And Catalina is basically what happened. And the, the stuff in the Finder, 
it's it, again, it's fine. It's basically the stuff that was in iTunes, but now it's in the Finder. You plug in an iOS device, and it shows up in the sidebar, and you click on it, and you get all the settings. And if you sync stuff, you can do it there. And if you transfer files, the files interface is there. Although strangely, it doesn't show the same exact list of files that are in the on my iPad, on my iPhone folder in the Files app on iOS. I don't know why, but it's very weird. Like some of them are there, but some of them aren't there. Um, it seems really inconsistent. Um, and I, I'm, you know, honestly, one of the, my favorite features is, uh, find my, because, uh, find my friends has not been a very, you could get to it, but in very limited ways on the Mac before. And now the full on find my app from iPad is on the Mac as well. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about catalyst then. What what has happened with this over the summer? Um, have you had any chance to try it out? Do you feel like there has been any advancements here? Like what what has been your mm. kind of feeling? Is it as as rosy as we hoped it would be? Uh, a situation, at least. Well, I'm looking to forward to see what Catalyst apps get released this week. Yes. Because that's going to that's gonna be interesting and what the quality is of them. Mm-hmm. I suspect that a lot of the first Catalyst apps we're going to see are going to be, uh, that there's going to be a collection of them that are, are ones where Apple aided the developers to have showcase apps. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that Apple's going to point to and say, look at this app. That that was, look how great it is. And it's going to be behind the scenes that they've got like a lot of help from Apple. But there are also a lot of independent developers who have been spending the summer building Catalyst apps. And those are going to come out and, and we're going to get a sense of what the strengths and weaknesses are of this. Um, talking to developers over the summer, the feeling I get is that there are lots of limitations. There are lots of things that Catalyst can't do. There are lots of things that Catalyst can only Catalyst apps can only do by basically bridging back to AppKit, which is what Mac apps use. And it's allowed. You can do it. You can actually go back and say, I need to do a thing over here using the Mac stuff. Um, that isn't going to help an iOS developer who's coming to the Mac for the first time because they don't know those tricks and they don't know that stuff. And that's part of the appeal of Catalyst is that you can bring your your iPad app over and it'll work. But there are workarounds. So I think um, the the sense I get, though, is that developers are, um, the developers I've talked to are disappointed in how inconsistent and frustrating Catalyst is. And, um, and that developers I've talked to who have both a Mac and an iOS app don't feel like they could uh, reduce their workload by just developing one app right now because their Mac app would regress because their Mac app wouldn't be able to do what it does now because of the limitations of Catalyst. They would turn it into a Catalyst app and it would lose features. And I think the developers I talk to are not uh, wanting to do that to their Mac users, right? Uh, So, you know, I think it's a work in progress. I think the developers will learn more about it. Um, My big open question is, what does Apple think of it? Because we know, you and I talked about it, Apple spent a lot of time on stage talking about Swift UI. And not a lot of time on stage talking about Mac Catalyst. And when developers got Catalyst, it's got all these kind of missing pieces and things about it that are not, that are frustrating. Uh, a lot of limitations. 
Um, you can't choose to have it be in the same uh, App Store ID as your iOS apps so that your customers who bought it on iOS just get it on the Mac. You can't do that. You literally have to charge them again. Um, a, lot of, a lot of little stuff like that. It doesn't do full screen. It doesn't hide, let you hide the cursor. Um, I was talking to Steve Trouton-Smith about this over the weekend. Like, even for games, it's not it's not really good because you can't do a lot of things. Or media playback because you can't do the things that you really want to with media playback. So my big overarching question is, how committed is Apple to making this better? Because it does feel like this is kind of the future of a bunch of Mac apps. And the livelihood of the Mac and the, and the, uh, uh, the Mac App Store kind of depend on these apps existing and being good. Um, but it's clear from what developers are seeing, saying that it's not good enough needs to be better. And my question is how is Apple going to make it better and how fast are they going to make it better? Are they going to be making it better throughout the year? Are we going to have to wait a year for it to be better? And will it be better in a year? Because, you know, the catalyst apps that Apple released on Mojave, they're not a lot better this year. They you know, they you still have that date spinner in the home app. Like there are improvements, but they're really not that much better. So, um so yeah, I, I think the jury is out on Catalina. I think that's the simplest way to put it. Is it's a work in or on Catalyst? It's a work in progress, and mm. Apple needs to do more. Ball is in their court on that one. But in the meantime, we will get some interesting apps that are coming from iOS that will finally run on the Mac, and that's a good thing. It's just that they may be a little bit weird, and it may take longer, and they may not be as good because Catalyst is not quite as far along as we would like. I think, real as you say, right, like the proof will be in the pudding on this one over the next few weeks. What actually happens, right? Like, does anything happen, right? Like, we don't, we don't know yet, right? Like, what is it gonna, what is it gonna end up being? What apps are we going to end up seeing? And I think we're just gonna have to wait and see, right? Like, we we have no idea. We have no way of knowing right now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Steve Trotton Smith's Twitter feed. Um, he ha- asked people to share their uh, Catalyst apps that they were working on. And there are some that are pretty ambitious. You know, they're multi-window, kind of complex, more productivity focused. And I look forward to trying those out and seeing how those feel. And I'm impressed. I mean, never underestimate Apple developers to figure out ways, clever ways to get their software to do what they want. Mm-hmm. And it seems like I have not heard a lot of stories where Apple has come back to them and said, hmm, you know, you shouldn't, you're cheating. You shouldn't really use AppKit there. Like Apple wants these apps to be good too. And so I think Apple is letting a lot of stuff go because like they're being clever and they're making the best of this and Apple benefits from having good catalyst apps. So I'm really looking forward to it. I, I honestly think the the question mark is how good are the apps? How good are the apps going to be? And when are they going to come out? And are the, we're going to get a shower of apps on launch day, but then there are other apps that are not going to come out and... Uh, what happens to those developers? Why, you know, there's not a Ferrite and there's not an overcast on day one because this summer has been so fraught with bugs for developers that a lot of developers are focused on getting their apps working on iOS 13. And that's number yeah. one priority. And the number two priority might be to uh, update their iPad apps to be ready for Catalina and then number and Catalyst. And then number three is Catalyst. So, after the flurry of apps, the first week or two, what happens after that? And is there, is there nothing? And when the apps continue to trickle on, onto the store, are they good or are they not? And none of that is something I know right now. 
Nobody does, right? No, I mean, I don't know. Maybe Federico has everybody sending him Catalyst apps. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, but I, I think we don't. I think uh, the apps are going to tell the story. Is there any other feature that you feel is worth spending some time discussing today? I know you, we've got stuff like uh, screen time, sidecar, those kinds of things. Yeah, I want to I wanna talk about sidecar um, but before I do that, I, I want to mention, we talked about this a while ago, this summer, about um, security and how Apple has cranked up the security even more in Catalina. And um, that's still true. So another warning I will give people is um, you will get more dialogue boxes in your face about your apps asking permission for stuff. You will get a, a, a flood of notification center approval requests when you launch Catalina for the first time. When you launch a bunch of older apps, you're going to get, can I look at the desktop? Can I look at the documents folder? Can I, it, it, a lot of permission requests are going to happen. It's annoying. I'm not sure Apple has struck the right balance between annoying the user and making the user so frustrated that they ignore what the security dialogues say. We'll see. Um, it frustrated me during the beta. We'll see how it does in the final. Um, and they have mandated uh, notarization, which is this process where a, an app developer has to upload their app basically to Apple for an automated process to give it a stamp of approval and then kick it back to them before that they can uh, they can release it. And it's not like an app store process where they're being looked at by a person, but it is a quick scan and then a little bit of a uh, an approval from Apple. And if your app, if an app you're trying to run doesn't have that, it basically will bring up a box that says it can't be opened because Apple can't check it for malicious software. This software needs to be updated. Contact the developer for more information. Yeah, you really. And, I remember you were very upset about that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a little bit too scary. Like using malicious in that box when it's really just something that Apple hasn't looked at. It's out of Apple's control. I don't love it. Um, the good news is this is Gatekeeper, which has been around for a while. It it uh, scans um, not just on first launch now, but it will scan multiple times. Uh, so if an app gets altered later and its signature changes, it can stop it and say, wait a second, this thing seems something's wrong with this app. Um, but because it's Gatekeeper, you can also do exactly what you did before, which is if you uh, control click on the app and choose open, Instead of it having the options OK and Show in Finder, it also has the option Open. And once you open that app, it just opens after that, just like before. So, you know, somebody stood on stage at WWDC in June and said, we will not prevent you from launching software that you want to launch. Um, and that seems to be true. What Apple's really doing is getting in your way more and saying, you know, you really shouldn't launch this. And I think by default, that's a good thing because defaults should probably be locked down. And the good news is that the bypass switches are still there mm -hmm. for users who want to do that. Um, we can talk about sidecar. I, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't get it. I don't okay. get it. It doesn't... I have tried to use sidecar. It's well implemented. You can put an external display. You can... You, I mean, the, I think the best part of Sidecar is that literally you can, from about 10 different places in the system, take an, an iPad that's near your Mac and say, I want to use this as an external monitor. And it just does it. It's like an AirPlay display, basically. And suddenly, boom, you've got a 
nice retina display external monitor attached to your mac you can drag you know files over to it windows over to it it's got a second desktop like great but all of these uses that apple has for it that are like well you can use it to mark this up and you can use it with this mac app and you can draw something on it almost every time i tried to do something in sidecar i thought to myself why don't i just do this in ios like, and this is how I felt by a lot of these kind of like screen on an iPad solutions for the Mac, where I felt like, why, like, oh, I could put my Twitter client over there, or I could literally just run my Twitter app on my iPad. Right. So for me, I, I really feel like the iPad is best as an iPad and not as an external display. And if there is a specific scenario where there's a Mac app and you have to use the Mac app, there's no iPad app. And you want to use, especially with pencil input, you want to draw or illustrate, and you can use this to do that with your iPad and it and get access to the pencil, in, which is something that you can't do on the on the Mac. Great, it's a very specific niche, and for more broad purposes, I just think, I mean, it's fine, but I had a, I really struggled to find ways where it was better than just using my iPad as an iPad where it's then it's purely completely native and running on my iPad. Also by the way, you're not you don't have to be within 10 meters of the Mac because that's a limitation of this. It's not like um screens or Luna display where you can go anywhere and you can initiate control from the iPad. You have to be within 10 meters because it's it's a handoff, it's an a, you know one of those kind of features and um you have to initiate it from your Mac. And so, you know, it's a nice feature to have. It's nice that iPads can automatically get turned into external displays. I think there are a lot of good uses for that, especially if you're on a on a laptop and you want a second display and you're working somewhere where you can just rig up your iPad and set mm-hmm. it next to your laptop and now you've got a second display. That's great. But even in those scenarios, a lot of the stuff I would want to do on the second display, I could just do on the iPad. Can I mirror the this my like entire display to it or is it only as like a second no you can mirror it's a it's a an external display at the at the root of it there are a bunch of things to like send a window over uh-huh. but at the base of it it's just a second display you can okay. do everything you could do with another external monitor including mirroring so i it's like basically how i've been using the lunar display was to uh well i guess the problem is for me i can't initiate from my ipad right yeah, that's that's the thing. Nor can you roam further than ten meters. But right. um, yeah, yeah. Also, I mean, I will say I like that they've got the little strip of things down the side in sidecar yeah, where like it's a got touch like bar, your, right? Yeah, yeah. So d- down on the bottom, the touch bar is there. So if you've never had a computer with a touch bar before, sidecar will give you that. And then on the side, there are controls to bring you okay. know bring up the keyboard and also like the modifier keys. So if you need to do a control click and you're using an app, you can tap, you know, the control symbol and then tap with your Apple Pencil and it will do a control click. So, um, and it's got like control option, uh, command, shift. And then it's got little shortcuts at the top to like, uh, it'll do, it's contextual, but it's things like show or hide the dock, show or hide the menu bar. Um, you know, it, a lot of nice things. I think the the challenge, for me, the challenge is that is is doing this better than just doing it on the iPad? And I'm sure there are scenarios where it is. But even something like Photoshop, like apparently Photoshop's coming this year. They've said last year it would be for iOS. Like even something like that, perhaps you'd rather just run Photoshop on your iPad rather than run Photoshop in this window on 
your Mac. So it's not it's not a bad feature. I think it's pretty well implemented. I appreciate all the work that they did. I just try to think of scenarios where um, I think it is is uh, useful, and I'm having a hard time. So I think it 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 does do what we thought in that it basically kills the duet display and lunar display for what they were initially made for, to do for what they were initially made to do which is yeah. that you wanted to have uh sort of apple pencil access to or just your a Mac second apps. display on an ipad right like you know those those kinds of things but right. what some people like me do which is to use it to like go into basically to have a mac that has no monitor on it and just jump into it replacing something like a vnc application basically exactly it does like change. screens one yeah. which i also use both of those it doesn't it doesn't replace those it, doesn't it replace is literally okay. a second display ap- apart from your mac within 10 meters that's what it is but it does do more than i initially thought it would do cuz I, I i don't know if if this was the way it was pitched initially or if i just misunderstood was that all you could really do was take a window of an app and move it but you can actually have like a whole mirrored display to it which is yeah great that is really great but it depends on what your use case is for a software product like this i mean i would say like if you've never done that before like you've never had a you've never had duet display or lunar display this is a cool feature that you could maybe get some use out of to have like a another window whenever you like another uh, desktop whenever you need it. But I am I think in in pretty much agreement with you the idea of like, but if you're going to be using a Mac version of an app, you should probably just use the iOS app. Yeah, that's the thing is there was a there was a time when I I really liked the idea of iPad as external display for your Mac laptop when you're traveling somewhere, but. So often, first off, if you're bringing an iPad with you, you're obviously an iPad user. And so many of the things I wanted to put on that second display were things like Slack or Twitter, which I could just run on the second display. It was very rare that I found like, oh, I can put this over there and that will improve my productivity because I'll have these two documents that I'm editing side by side. That is a use case and that's, that's great. I just feel like the iPad is so strong and the apps on it are so good that it takes away a lot of the use cases for why I would want to use it as a second Mac display instead of just as a, an iPad running next to my Mac doing iPad things. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So that's Catalina then. Download at your yeah. own peril. Yeah, uh, handle with care. Watch what other people say. Make sure your peripherals, like if you've got a document scanner and they're not going to support it and it doesn't work, you should know that. This really feels like a, for most people, you should scanner. sit down and like make a list. Like, look at the use Go yeah. sixty four. Look at the apps you use. Then sit and look at your desk. Like, what do you have plugged in? Like, make sure you know. If you have a big enough external hard drive, the right thing to do is probably to clone used Super Duper or Carbon Copy Cloner and clone your drive to an external and upgrade that drive to Catalina and see what happens. That's that's most time intensive. And requires external mm-hmm. hardware. But that will tell you, like, can this scan snap scanner still scan things? Oh, no, right? Or, oh, I didn't even think of this app. I didn't know that this app was broken. Let's contact the developer. Does that developer still exist? Who knows? Like, mm-hmm. that's the the scary thing. And um, one of the funny features, uh, it's a good feature that Apple has added in Catalina, is this rollback feature where if you install a software update for like 24 hours, it keeps a, a an APFS snapshot of pre-update. 
So if you do an update and it breaks your stuff, you can actually roll back to before the update. Unfortunately, it requires Catalina. <laughs> so you, like, you know you, you were saying earlier and i agree right the idea of like you know make sure you tell people like the more regular users in your life to, like think about this but me as i would consider myself a power user like i have no idea if my wacom tablet is supported on catalina i don't know if my epson printer is supported on catalina i don't know the i would have to check all of that right and and that is something that people you were right in in the caution like People need to check this stuff beforehand because if my Wacom tablet did not work with Catalina because like Wacom are taking time getting their drivers ready, my computer is basically unusable to me because that's how I use, that's how I interact with my Mac. So I would need to know that before updating. So think about it. Yeah. Everybody. Think, yeah. Make sure you know. Yeah, and there's there's cool stuff in here. Mm-hmm. I just I'm not saying that this is a bad update. I'm I'm saying that and Apple aren't doing this to be mean, right? Like, no, you know, and, they, like and they, they've given developers a lot of time. They you gotta advance. This is the truth is you've got to advance the platform eventually. The fact that James to bring up our friend James again had a piece of software that basically was just using Carbon. It's essentially classic macOS software, and it still ran on Mojave. That's amazing, right? At some point, you do have to clear up. The, co- the old software and the cobwebs you need to you need to clean up your code base you need to stop supporting ancient stuff so that you can move ahead a lot of theories out there about how this may also be one of these things that if you're going to do a code or a uh, uh, processor transition that uh you gotta you gotta find the stuff that can't make the processor transition and deprecate it maybe that's going on too but just this is how it happens with computers and apple's 32-bit stuff had a really good long run but at some point you do need to do that and apple did everything right they warned everybody way in advance they have spent actually they put it in not even mojave in high sierra if you had a 32-bit app starting in the spring of High Sierra, not right when it came out, but in the spring with High Sierra of last year, it would warn you and say, this app is going to need to be updated because it will not be great in Mojave, I think, but it will really not work in 2019 with what is now Catalina. And then Mojave, the whole time when you launch something or even have it, it's it's been peppering little alerts when you start up your Mac or when you launch an app saying, this app is not going to work soon. So Apple's done everything it can, but the fact is that if you're a user and you rely on that stuff, it's now on you. You need to not update until you're certain. Apple can't do any more than what it's done. And if you need to step off the update cycle for a while in order to get your tools to be what you want them to be, now is the time. And this is not a warning that I really needed to give for Sierra or High Sierra or Mavericks or... Yeah, right. It doesn't happen that often, but oh. this is one of those times. Okay. All right, let's do some hashtag ask upgrade questions before we round out today's bumper episode, and we'll uh, thank Direct Mail for their support of this show. Direct Mail is an easy to use email marketing app that is designed exclusively for the Mac to help you create and send great-looking email newsletters. Email marketing is still an incredibly cost-effective way to reach your customers and grow your business. And for the past 15 years, Mac users around the world have trusted the Direct Mail app to handle 
all of their email marketing needs. It is designed for the Mac, which means it's fast and easy to use and works great with the other apps and services that you're already used to. With Direct Mail, you can save time by integrating with over 1,000 other apps and services that are on your Mac and on the web. You can have email campaigns sent automatically without you ever lifting a finger and you can quickly and easily compose high-quality emails that will look fantastic on mobile and and desktop. They have real human live chat customer support that are available to answer your questions, and Direct Mail is the number one top-rated email marketing app that's available for the Mac with five-star reviews in the App Store, GetApp, and elsewhere, and it's trusted by small businesses, nonprofits, schools, and Fortune 500 companies alike. Direct Mail is free to download and get started, and listeners of this show, show can save 10% on all full-featured pricing plans. So go to directmailmac.com slash upgrade to check it out. That is directmailmac.com slash upgrade, and you will get 10% off when you opt for a full-feature plan as well when going there. That is directmailmac.com slash upgrade. Our thanks to Direct Mail for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So we have some hashtag AskUpgrade questions. We have two here from Johan about the AirPods. So, do you, Johan wants to know two things from us. First is, do you ever use just one AirPod? Oh, uh, almost never. The only times I ever do this is when I'm on a long-haul flight and the AirPods start to die. I'll take one out <laughs> and charge it. Then, after a little while, put that back in, take the other one out, charge that, and then I've got both back running again. It's the only time I ever use one AirPod. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think of a scenario where I would use it, and I, I don't think I can. Because one of the things about like using one AirPod is when you take one AirPod out, it pauses, right? So it's not like the old days where like you'd pop one of your earbuds out and maybe then forget to put it back in again, and the, the audio would keep playing. Now, right. when you take one out, the audio stops playing, and the way you resume it typically is by putting it back in again. So, and very rarely, I, I guess I would be—it would be a scenario where somebody was going to be talking to me occasionally, and I needed to hear them. But it would be so distracting that I generally, in those scenarios, I won't use the AirPods at all. Like if somebody's going to—if I need to listen for something, I'm not going to be using the AirPods. So, so no, no. And what are the double tap settings on your AirPods? So mine is the right one is a skip and the left one is a play pause. Okay. I have both set to play pause because I don't think I would be good enough to remember the differences between the two. So I just oh, I, both I, pause. I do it wrong. I do it wrong all the time. But there, there are go. scenarios where I don't want to take an AirPod out of my ear and hold it. And so I want to have a play pause, even though I know I can take it out of my ear and that works too. I found, because I used to not have that as a gesture, and I found that uh, there are lots of scenarios where what I really want to do is tap it and keep it in my ear because my hands are messy or because I'm doing something that requires my hands and I don't want to hold the AirPod and I don't want to put it down somewhere. So, But I do enough of, I don't like this, I want to skip it, that I want the skip function on there. So I have it on my right one. And that's just mostly, it's a skip, you go forward, and so... I have it on my right because I go from left to right. I will do, I will actually add a third question in on this one. Uh, Bonus question. Uh oh. We just, we just introduced the bonus thing. Those the bonus lasers. Okay. Um, Do you uh, ever, do you have a high telephone turned on? Um, You know, I don't know if I do because I've never used it. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> maybe if you've never used it, maybe you have it on. Yeah. Maybe. I have it on. I left it on because I do actually find it useful. If it's like, on by default, then it's on. But I don't. I don't know if I've ever actually triggered a Hoy mm-hmm. AirPods. Because I will use my AirPods when I'm say washing the dishes or whatever, right? So yeah. having access then is really useful uh, because then it also stops the HomePod from jumping in. Huh? Yeah, I don't think I've done it. I'm a bad AirPod user. You really are. Warner asked, "I've upgraded from an iPhone 8 to an iPhone Pro." Uh, for both me and my partner, but we're both noticing vibrations are noticeably weaker on the iPhone Pro. Uh, my wife depends on the sound of vibrations on the desk at work. Curious if this is a change or is a bug. So my belief here, Jason, is that going from the 8 to the Pro, you will have gone from the vibrate motor to the haptic motor. And uh. that's what's going on because the haptic motor is quiet. Right, but it's more fine control, but it's quiet. Yes, so they can you can feel it differently. I actually feel like it was it's much better at making the effect that you need, and that and also there's a much more control over it. Apps can can use different uh, types of vibration, mm-hmm. but it will be quieter. Uh, so it's not a bug. Uh, it is just I believe different hardware. So so I have a couple of recommendations for Warner and his wife, Mrs. Warner. Um, first is. You can make custom vibrations mm-hmm. in settings, and so you could you could actually try to make one that's more noticeable. It just goes like wild. a pattern. You can just pattern. tap that thing so far, and it just goes bananas. You could do that. Yeah, so you could try that. And the other thing I will say, and I know this sounds dumb, but <laughs> sometimes the dumb things work, which is if she's depending on the sound of vibrations on the desk at work, look at what the alert sounds are on the phone. And if those are too annoying, you know, you can actually, and you're going to have to look it up on the internet, but you can make custom tones yep. on iOS devices. Maybe you should make a custom tone that is subtle and maybe even sounds like a vibrating phone and use it as her alert tone so that she can get a sound because obviously she's using sound. So you should be able to use a sound to alert her, even if it is not made by the vibrations mm-hmm. from the the Taptic engine. So it's just another thought is that you could make a subtle sound that is not a beep, boop, boop kind of thing. A subtle sound. Could, if you still have the iPhone 8, just, I don't know, put a nice microphone it's Just record, it. <laughs> record your old iPhone vibrating. Yeah, uh-huh. sure. I mean, there's a lot. What I'm saying is maybe there's another solution here to mm-hmm. get a sound that tips her off that is not uh, based on the vibrating engine in the device. So the iPhone 8 did have 3D touch, which meant that it probably had a taptic motor. But what? But my expectation is, and I well, I know they've changed it over time and they've made it better. So my expectation is, in making it better, they made it quieter, and that, yeah. or, or at least they, the way it's done is different. The way it will vibrate the body of the phone will be different. Um, and over time, it's gotten maybe more nuanced, so it's probably less noisy on a desk. That's what's but happened. Try, try a custom vibration. But And that's a note for everybody. Like, mm-hmm. if you rely on uh, vibration patterns on your phone, did, did you know you can make custom vibration patterns and tie them to people? So that you can, like, literally, if you're just listening to your phone vibrate on a desk or you've got it in your pocket and you're feeling it, you can literally tell who's calling or texting you based on the vibration pattern. You can do that. You can set custom vibrations for everybody and you can record your own vibration patterns. Plus you can do custom tones yep. and set those. So there's, I've put a there's link a in the show notes there. to a 9 to 5 Mac article that explains Great. exactly how to do this. Fab. And there's a top tip right there. Jeff wants to know, mm. 
Is there a special invocation to get Siri to respond and answer a question specifically via voice? For instance, if you ask Siri in the car for the weather, Siri gives a spoken weather report via voice. But if asked on the watch or on the phone, Siri will respond via a graphical interface, like saying, like, here you go, and we'll show you uh, the, the weather report. Now, my understanding on this, Jason, and you can correct me if you know differently, is that Siri will respond depend on state. So if you are asking Siri a question and this, a screen is off, right, when you're asking the question and maybe you're using a high telephone, it will respond with voice because you're yep. not looking at it. And that's the same for the car because you shouldn't be looking. Right. But if you ask Siri and the screen is on, or then it will give you a visual indicator because it, the, the phone or the device assumes you're looking at it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the idea there is if you do an Ahoy telephone and your telephone screen is off, it should respond with voices and not show you a picture. But I don't I haven't tried that lately, so I don't know. But that's the idea is that it's supposed to be contextually aware and and speak things if it thinks you can't see the screen. Um same for AirPods. So that should happen, but I don't, you know, I don't use Siri enough in these contexts to no, for sure. Um, by the way, I used CarPlay and iOS 13 extensively this weekend, and we don't have time for it now, but we should talk about that sometime because I got to I got to spend a lot of time with CarPlay, and I think it's uh, pretty good, but it's got some weird things about it too. But we'll we'll save that. We'll save that for next time. All right. So, topic idea: Jason has CarPlay on CarPlay that has been added yeah. to my Apple Note. For Great. A... Stay tuned for that. It may never happen, but it might happen next week. Who yeah, knows? It's like Kindle. <laughs> I have a whole Kindle topic. I deleted that. Get... <laughs> I deleted that this morning because we it's too late. Oh, goodbye, Kindle topic. You've been removed <laughs> forever, it would seem. Yeah, the Kindle topic and the uh, HomePod pricing topic that have yeah. been in our document the HomePod for, got for like cheaper. six months. We both have two of them now. We both like it. There's the topic. It's snuck There's in that there. topic. Done. Check. I'm done glad I deleted done. it now. Kindle, good e-reader. Software sucks. Yeah. Topic done. Get, get, the, get the paper white. There you go. Kevin asks, 11 days into iOS 13, and the device has asked me if I want to continue to always allow Google Maps, Waze, Carrot Weather, and other apps to my location three times for each app. Well, I keep getting this message every five to six days. Now, I can't talk for the frequency of what's going on here to you, Kevin, but this is something that is in iOS 13. So devices yeah. that are asking in the background for your location, there will be different situations that are going on. I think one time it will ask you if the app is checking a bunch in the background, it will ask you when you're on the home screen. And I think when you open the app, it will ask you if you want to allow it to keep asking when you're using the app for the app to have your location. My expectation is once you've answered these questions per application, it will stop asking you. That is what I would assume should be happening. Yeah, I don't know what is going on. I mean, I, we know what's going on, which is the idea is Apple wants you to be aware of apps that use your location. And yeah. so what it's doing is a multi-stage process where it asks first, like, do you want to allow it? And then it shows you that it's going in the background on a map of where you've been and says, it knows you've been these places. Are you okay with that? Or do you only want this to be when the app is open? And if you're using an app that needs to be know where you are all the time so it can notify you like a weather app or my uh, my smart lock app needs to know that because it needs to know when I leave home mm-hmm. and then when I return then you have to say yes I like that it educates you about like did you know that this random app knew all of these places that you've been um, 
but it, at some point it needs to stop. And I think that this is really the core of the question. I don't know the answer. I haven't been tallying like how many times has it asked me about Dark Sky, but um, it should stop, right? It should do that once and I say yes and then it should go away and never ask me again. Yep. And I don't know if there's a bug there or if that's intentional for it to keep bugging you, but it should not keep nagging you about an app after you've said, yes, I really do want carrot weather to know where I am because I care about the weather. So I've uh, included a link in the show notes to Federico's section in his iOS review uh, about this. And it is supposed to automatically kind of change and re-ask you after a period of inactivity. But I, I don't know what's exactly happening with, with Kevin's situation here. But I will reiterate, I think this is a really good feature. And I'm pleased they did it. I think they tried to do it in iOS 12 and got a lot of pushback from developers and changed it. But now they have actually gone ahead and added this feature. I think they made it less aggressive. Do you remember it had that like blue bar that used to pop up? But I really like yeah. the map. It shows you the map. And I like that I'm, I'm changing my settings a lot in applications. Like I'm, I'm opening apps and it's like, this app wants to know basically all the time where you are. And I'm like, but I don't need that. So... I'm going to say no, and you can only know when I'm using the application. And and I've been perfectly fine with that. But then there's been others where I'm like, no, I do want my home security system to be able to use my location all the time because it's an important part of the feature that it knows when I'm coming home and that kind of stuff. So I like that it's giving you the ability to fine tune it. So probably worth something keeping an eye on, I guess, if it seems like it's wild. But I would not uh, be surprised if there was some kind of bug in iOS 13 because there's been a few of those. All right, so I think that wraps it up for this week's episode. If you'd like to send in a question uh, for us to answer on the show, you can always send out a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, and it could be included for a future episode. Thank you to everybody who has done that. Um, if you want to find Jason's work online, go to sixcolors.com. That is where you can go right now to read Jason's wonderful um, review of Mac OS Catalina, which I was about to wow. call Mojave, Jason. That was the problem. I was going to uh-huh. call it Mojave, and it's not Mojave. Sick. That almost 7,000 words about an OS you should be a little scared of. But that's why there's that many words. I bet there would have been like 5,000 if you should have been less scared of it. Yeah, it makes actually, it that's, probably, that's probably true. Yeah. Like, I genuinely, like, I enjoyed reading the review because it was not, cut, it's not cut and dry, Catalina. Yeah. And there's more of a story in there rather than just here are the features, right? Like, there's more of a, have a story that you can sink your teeth into because there's some weird stuff going on. And as we have said in this episode and, and you'll get from the review, you need to think about this one. You can also follow Jason. He's at Jason now. I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thanks to Direct Mail, Squarespace, and Bombas for their support of this show. And uh, we'll be back next time. Maybe. I might not be here next week. It depends on if there's an Apple event announced between now and our next episode. Mm. Who knows? Who knows? Nobody knows. It's a great upgrade mystery. Maybe there's a draft next week. Maybe there's a guest next week. You'll find out next Monday. Something great is happening next week, Mike. Something unusual. We just don't know what it is yet. Yep. Something awesome will happen. It may or may not include me. Until then, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.